could be seated. Dismiss our kids to children's ministry if you into that sort of thing. Matthew 5, 7 is our text. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Yesterday afternoon, I was reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as one does on a Saturday afternoon. And I was specifically scanning for the various passages where we see God as, I guess you might say, art director. God has, of course, created all things. We don't often have insights into why. Why, why do we have two arms and not four or three or so on and so forth? We don't have a lot of insight into the whys behind many of God's design choices. But God is, of course, the artist, the original, the original artist. And so it's very interesting to find these passages throughout the, the first five books of the Bible, specifically from Exodus through, uh, through uh, Deuteronomy, that show God telling people what to create and how to create it and why they should create it this way or that way. And it's a very interesting idea. It's, a, it's worth looking at next time you're in that neck of the Bible woods. Start looking at this God who is designing things, sacred art implements for his worship and why he is designing things the way that he is and what's with the, the robes and the tabernacle and so forth. But yesterday my attention was primarily drawn to the ark because there is a phrase that is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in particular through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and that is the phrase the mercy seat. So why and what? Why would God, when designing the ark, this is a, this is a photo. They had a pretty good camera back then. Uh, Aaron snapped that right before he melted. <laughs> uh, uh, why, why design what is the ark, what's going on, and why is the thing on top called the mercy seat? The, the interior holds the original tablets of the Ten Commandments holds the law. Why is the top called the mercy seat? Well, I think the thing that gets lost in thinking through this is that the ark is actually meant to be the throne of God on earth. This is God's sort of earthly schema where he has designed a castle or a, yeah, a castle called the tabernacle or called the temple, and the interior space is the throne room, and this is the throne upon which the presence of God sits. And it's easy to forget that this is supposed to be sort of a portable earth throne representing where the presence of God resides. And I think the thing I'd point you to as we start thinking about mercy this morning is, is that when God is designing something that represents a throne for him to rest on, on earth, it is a throne of mercy. And it could be no other kind of throne, for the holy God to dwell among us means, above all, that he dwells among us with merciful 
intentions. If there were any other intentions, if any other kind of throne, we would not long dwell among God. What we see is God choosing to engage in the world through the lens or through the choice of mercy. Now, what, what is mercy? I think it's important to define it. It's also kind of difficult. So you've really got two schools of thought that are probably both faithful and have good arguments for, for, for what they say mercy is. The, the one school of thought is that mercy is just a, a, a synonym essentially for, for sympathy that applies generally to anyone in a suffering condition that has a general uh, inclination toward helping Pity plus action, something like that. So that's one school of thought. And then there's another school of thought. This is the one I think that I subscribe to. And that is, is that mercy is essentially sympathy applied specifically to people experiencing self-inflicted wounds. Mercy is compassion for people who are suffering the consequences of their sin or who will suffer the consequences of their sin. So the two schools of thought are not that far apart. You've got on the one hand, mercy is just a synonym for compassion. And certainly in that view, it would include being concerned for people who are suffering the consequences of their sin. And then my argument would be that no, mercy is distinct from compassion as a subset, and that it is specifically how God responds to people suffering what I think of as self-inflicted wounds or people suffering the consequences of their sin. That is the mission of God. The mission of God in the world is to seek and save the lost, to intervene in a sin-sick world full of self-inflicted wounds. God has chosen in his wisdom to dwell among us on a throne of mercy as we all walk through the consequences of sin and more specifically our sin. And that's what Jesus came to do. When Jesus stood before his own people in Nazareth, he opened the scroll to the book of Isaiah and read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I think that the thing that is important if we're thinking of mercy as the consequences of one's own sin is to read that passage and understand they're in prison because they deserve to be there. They're captive because they deserve to be captive. They're poor because they've squandered their father's inheritance. That Jesus has come on a mission of mercy to proclaim the Lord's favor to people who are suffering the consequences of their sin. This is what God has come to do. And so the ark is really signaling to us what God's about. It is the word of God capped with mercy. The law of God capped with mercy. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. And on top of mercy rests the presence of God. And I think there's potentially an argument to be made that people, Christians, 
new creation, are little arcs, and that we're all carrying around the, the, the throne room of God in some respect. Does that hold up? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. The more you read the Bible, you, you start looking at correlations, and you're like, I don't know if I'm just making this up, because I sure wouldn't put it past God. He just, he's very creative. He, there are very few coincidences and so forth. Are you an ark? Are, are you like a mercy seat? I, I don't know. The Bible says that he will put your word into your heart, so I guess you're kind of like an ark. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. It, the reason why it's interesting is because at Pentecost, the presence of God rests on your head. And so then now we've got this idea that like maybe, maybe I and you and all of us are actually just these arcs that move out into the world and win the conquest for Jesus. So anyway, but that's a side point. It doesn't matter. It's just interesting. Uh, pure speculation. What I can say is this. Romans 9 says very clearly that we are vessels of mercy. What does that mean? Well, we are mason jars filled with God's mercy. That's what it means. That's what we are as people who are redeemed. We hold God's mercy. We are vessels of mercy. And of course, that reminds me of the kind of famous sermon illustration at this point. Maybe some of you haven't heard it yet, but of the, the spilled coffee cup or the spilled coffee or the, the bumped coffee cup. And the illustration is simply this. If I'm holding a cup of coffee and someone bumps my arm and coffee comes out, I tend to think the guy who bumped my arm made the coffee come out. This is kind of true, but more relevant perhaps in a discussion of our own faith is coffee came out of the cup because there was coffee in the cup. And it's like, what happens when you get bumped? What you're full of is revealed to the world, and maybe even to yourself. What happens when someone sins against you? What happens when circumstances are difficult? What happens when you get bumped? Well, what's spilling out of you? Well, I could tell you, based on what Jesus is talking to us about in Matthew 5, 7, and what he's saying in Romans 9 and many other places, the idea is to be filled with God's mercy to such an extent that when you are bumped, mercy comes out. That's what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 5, 7, to be reflexively merciful people. Now, the text says, blessed are the merciful. And I want to establish here, and I think this can bring hope to you, uh, it certainly has to me, and also challenge, I want to make sure we understand that there's a difference between a thing you do sometimes and a thing that you are. Because the text here is saying, blessed are those people who could be accurately described by God himself as merciful people. Not individuals who sometimes show mercy, but individuals who are repeatedly, reflexively, continually merciful to such an extent that they would fit the description, not simply as someone who does mercy sometimes, but as a merciful person. Think of it this way. Thank God there's a big difference between someone who commits a sin and someone who practices sinning, right? Thank God there's a huge difference between telling a lie 
and being a liar, right? And some of you know, just in a, a kind of less spiritualized context, some of you know that there's this phenomenon where, you know, just because you can tell a few jokes doesn't make you funny. <laughs> like, it, there's a difference between doing an action a few times and being so caught up and so involved and so integrated into this action that you would be described as this thing. So it's like you could tell a few jokes and not be a funny person. A funny person is a higher bar. Well, this is what we're seeing in this text. We're not asking occasionally when the lights are dimmed just right, uh, some perhaps around Christmas time, or when there's a sad dog face on, a, on TV or an orphan you see on, on a commercial, occasionally do you dole out some mercy? It's like, that's not the question. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to be merciful in the same way that a funny person is funny or in the same way that a liar is a pathological liar. Like, he's calling us to be this thing, not simply just to occasionally do it. Now, is that you? Are you a merciful person? When you get bumped, and now I wouldn't argue every time, but when you get bumped, does mercy tend to spill out? I can tell you one thing for sure. God is a merciful person. And when you bump him, almost always, mercy comes out. And you can go through both the biblical history and also in church history and find people who knew him very well, like David or Thomas Watson, tied for first there. And you can ask these men who have walked with God faithfully for many years and loved him dearly and knew him well, what is he? What is he exactly? This is the question you don't want to ask someone who doesn't know God very well. You want to ask someone who does know God very well. So, David, what is he? David would say he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you could ask him on the day he was writing this psalm or that psalm or this psalm or that psalm. And every time, David, what is he? Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, but David, what is he? Psalm 111, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Friends, we could do this all day. Oh, Thomas Watson, dear Puritan, dear man of God who loved the Lord so deeply, what, what is he? Thomas Watson, even so far as to say this, Mercy is like God's right hand. It is the hand he is used to using. It is the hand he reflexively uses. It is his default. Wrath is a strange work to God. It is his left hand. It is less automatic. Now that feels a little sketchy to me, not going to lie. Well, let's give Thomas some room. He's, if he's wrong, he knows it more than we do now. Thomas Watson would say things like, God applies wrath with an eyedropper. God doesn't even measure mercy. 
It's a fountain. So who is he? Well, he's merciful. He's merciful in the sense that most of the time when he gets bumped, he shows mercy. And God's been bumped a lot. He's been sinned against a lot. He's being sinned against a lot today, even by a few of the people in this room, by all of us. And so one of the things we need to see when we're looking at Jesus' invitation to holiness in Matthew 5-7 is that it's not so much an invitation, it's a command. And uh, for the Christian, mercy is basically a holiness issue. And this is something that I wish every young zealot understood. They're so worried about not compromising this standard or that standard. It's like you're compromising all over the place. Because you're not a merciful person. And God is. And so you don't measure up to him. So for the Christian, mercy is a holiness issue. The Lord is merciful. We must be merciful. And God says repeatedly, I desire mercy more than formal sacrifices. Now, we need to think more about the nature of mercy because we are in an interesting period of time in the development of God's glory in the world and the church. For many years, for centuries indeed, in many cultures, even some to this day, showing mercy would be a sign of weakness. Being thought of as a merciful person in many cultures where strength and brutality are on the fore, showing mercy is a good way to have all of the henchmen circle in on you next. It's dog eat dog. It's mano a mano. So we don't live in that kind of culture. Not yet. We live in a culture that is post-Christian and sees mercy as virtuous, which invites people who don't know Jesus, who don't want to know Jesus, to hijack mercy, the name, right, and, and sort of counterfeit it and sort of strut their faux mercy stuff in front of the world. And meanwhile, we're like sincere Christians and we're just trying to like do the thing God tells us to do. So we have to be careful when we talk about mercy or we talk about love or we talk about forgiveness even. We have to be careful that we're taking cues from the Lord because the world certainly has, in our world in particular, has opinions about these things and will deceive us and make us think that we uh, that they have mercy figured out when, when they don't. So we need to ask questions about mercy. And to be honest, we need to understand that mercy is complicated. It's, it's, a, go, it's a godly, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attribute of God, so it has to be complicated. Mercy is an attribute of God, so that means that it's really not technically separate from any other thing. This is why I feel a little skittish with Thomas Watson's idea, but I appreciate the, the heart behind it. So we, once, we start, once we take mercy out of God and start looking at it individually, we've already sort of Schrodinger catted it. You know, we've, started, we've messed it up by isolating and observing it. It's like it really needs to be in the context of God's whole personality. We've talked about that. So we need to think about mercy carefully. It's like, well, here's a couple of thoughts. The first one is, what is the relationship between mercy and the law? Now, we know to ask that question because of the ark, amongst many other things. We know to ask this question because God seems to keep situating these two things together. 
So I think we would just say this. Mercy is not indifferent to the law of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Mercy does not mean that we should be, quote-unquote, easygoing, as we put it. There are so many people today who think that being merciful means to be easygoing, not to see things, or if we do see them, to pretend we have not. That, of course, is a particular danger in an age like this, which does not believe in law or discipline, and in a sense does not believe in justice or righteousness. The idea today is that man should be absolutely free-minded, that he has the right to do just what he likes. The merciful person, many people think, is the one who smiles at transgression and law-breaking. He says, what does it matter? Let's carry on. He's a f- and <laughs> Joan says, he is a flabby kind of person. I felt targeted. He is a flabby kind of person, easygoing, easy to get on with, to whom it does not matter whether laws are broken or not, and who is not concerned with keeping them. And so we have from Jones's own perspective, one kind of counterfeit of mercy, a mercy that doesn't really have any relationship to right or wrong. Mercy is, in fact, in this perspective, just the pure dismissal of right and wrong. But biblically speaking, the word mercy is built on the word justice. You remove justice, you remove a word like deserved in the negative sense, and you don't have any notion of mercy. Mercy is essentially not getting what you deserve in a negative sense. Now, what's so interesting about this is that some of you are the high standard, high justice types. I have, I have one of my kids like this, you know, the high justice kid. And uh, there's just personalities that are just, they just lean into that direction of being the high justice kid. And that's, that, and you might be one of those people. Here, I have, I have good news for you. Mercy will not come naturally to you, but it will mean so much more when you, as a person with high standards and high expectations, learn how to give that to others. Because you're not living in some sort of amorphous, chaotic blob of who knows what's up and down and right and wrong. You're like, no, that's right. That's wrong. That's right. That's wrong. It's like, great, add mercy to that, and you're actually not far off from the Lord. So in many respects, the people who have the best shot at giving the best mercy are those who with the most clear moral vision. Uh, So that's a good thing. Now, what we can see from God's own discussion of mercy is that the law is all over it. Moses is doing something very... I think brave or stupid, he's asking to see God, uh, which God's already told him is a deadly thing. And Moses just says, I'm not going any further until I see your glory. And God says, okay, go get some tablets, and the tablets, these are the tablets that wind up in the ark and so on. And uh, he says, I'm going to appear behind you at first. And I just want to read the text to you. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So 
So right there we see there is no mercy without law. There is no grace without sin, without law. God is forgiving you for violating something. He's being gracious to you for in spite of yourself. He says, God, this, again, God says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father to the children in the third and fourth generation. So the whole idea of mercy is tied in with right and wrong and truth and justice. Well, there's another question that's kind of pertinent to our understanding of mercy, and that would be something like, what is the relationship between mercy and learning your lesson? What is the relationship between mercy and learning your lesson? Remember, mercy is apparently a sympathetic action that injects into someone suffering the consequences of their sin. And I think we all understand, I think we've all been there, that sometimes hardship is the teacher we need. How does mercy work with this? And this is a huge parenting question. How does mercy correlate with this thing that God has obviously designed by which we learn as we suffer the consequences of our sin. Well, this is the kind of, you know, nuanced preaching you've come to expect here. You're not going to get this anywhere else. Like, what I mean by that, and I, do, I mean this seriously, is it would be so easy to hand you platitudes that, that essentially handcuff you right now to being frustrated with the attempt to be merciful. But this is a real question. It's like, am I, how, do I, how, how can I be merciful to someone who is suffering the consequences of their sin and seems to need to suffer the consequences of their sin in order to learn not to sin? So we need to think about this. And we need to think about it because we're going to take, it, take Jesus seriously. He tells us to be merciful. We need to be merciful. No exceptions. We need to figure this out. So we need to know what to do with these sort of wrinkles. Well, let me give you six points that will help you think through this question. First one, to be sure, consequences do teach us lessons, but they are not the only way we learn lessons. Just remember that, first of all. Romans 2 says that it is God's kindness and forbearance that leads us to repentance. So yes, consequences are an important part of learning lessons, but there are many lessons I have learned that were not connected to consequences, simply to God being nice to me. <laughs> so there's one nuance. Number two, I would say this. Most of the time when you are called to exercise mercy to someone who is suffering the consequences of their sin, most of the time you actually won't have the power to remove most of the consequences of their sin. So that's just the reality. Most of the time when people are in need of mercy, they have, what, the way I think about it is, they have spent a long time planting weeds in their own yard. And there's really just no getting around the fact that those seeds of the flesh have been sown, and they are going to go through a difficult season. So the truth is, is that even if you wanted to, many times as you're trying to be merciful with someone, you actually can't. If, even if you could, because, I mean, I think sometimes with our kids, we wish, you know, we could just 
It wouldn't be great for them, but, you know, sometimes we, we feel this. It's like you can't even do it, even, even if you want to. That's one of the hard lessons of parenting. Uh, the third idea is, is that mercy is shockingly less about making things easier for someone and more about making things less, making their misery less lonely. If you wanted to boil down biblical mercy as God exercises it across the board in all circumstances, it, would, it wouldn't always be to make the situation easier, per se. It would almost always be to join the person in the situation. I think this is the takeaway when asking, how do I become a more merciful person? A lot of times, we're fixers. We have a tendency to think, like, I want to make this situation better for them, and maybe you can. But many times when people are suffering the consequences of their sin, the main consequence they're suffering is that they are left alone to pull weeds, left alone to suffer the consequences, left alone to deal with the self-sabotage. And friends, what seems to be the, most, the, the deepest expression of God's mercy is he won't leave us alone. Even though he had nothing to do with our sin. He had nothing to do with our choices. Friends, if you'd made some really terrible choices and you wound up in a really lonely period, in a really hard period, and you have no one to blame but yourself, I'm going to tell you two things that are amazing. And the first one is, is that even though everything you did was offensive to God, if you call out to him, he will be with you through every moment of that hardship. And he will make that hardship, he will redeem it. And he'll, he won't, you, won't even, you won't only learn lessons not to do that thing again, you'll learn thousands of other things. So if you're in a moment like that, understand this, the, the most merciful thing God can do is to be with you. That's the greatest gift any of us could ever have is for God to be with us. And so if you're in a situation or you know someone else is in a situation, they're suffering the consequences of their sin, well, for one thing, it's, it's super encouraging to know God will be with them, but also you be with them. You get out there and help them figure out how to undo what can be undone. And friends, many times the greatest consequence to sins that sort of demand mercy is they have angered a lot of people, they have betrayed people, they have been untrustworthy, and so on. Here's what you do. Here's how you show mercy. You forgive them. If, you have, if, if they've sinned against you, you forgive them, and you restore fellowship with that person. That's mercy. Don't let them do it alone. Now, that's, those are the first three points. Fourth point is, very often, that one filter will get rid of all of the fools and liars who are going to waste your time and money and heart. So there are some people who do not want mercy. And they especially, they don't even agree with you about the nature of their problem. We had someone come into the church recently who kind of systematically separated and picked a, a bunch of people's generosity pockets and, you know, walked away with, I don't know, maybe like $500 total over like two to three weeks. And all the while, I kept telling this person, you know, if you would just like become friends with these people, your life would be a completely different life in a year. 
It's like, if you would just sit here and humbly learn and submit yourself to, to, to men who are older than you and just do the whole church thing for a year, your life would be completely different. And he would rather have had $500 than that. It's like, that's a, going to be a part of our experience trying to walk in mercy. But here's what I'll tell you. When you look to someone and you say, you know what, I don't know how much I can bail you out, but I'm happy to get in the boat with you and start working together on a solution. That kind of person who was a liar and a taker, that kind of person doesn't want you in their boat. And so many times, like, as we're figuring out, how can I be a merciful person? The answer is, the thing that we least want to do, which is to be with them in their, in their misery, is also the thing that will best separate out those who are really appealing for mercy and those who are not. One of the things that you can see for certain in Scripture is, and this is, this is something, again, no one ever talks about. We, we always put all of the onus on the mercy giver. We don't put any responsibility on the mercy receiver. But when you actually just study this issue, you'll see throughout Scripture, a massive chunk of the data about mercy is about people asking for mercy. And that makes all of this so much easier when someone is asking for mercy. Because what are they asking for when they ask for mercy? Well, it's, it's an expression of repentance. It's an acknowledgement that I screwed up. I, I, I hurt myself. I've, I've put myself into a difficult situation. And so I would say, gosh, I would say probably, you know, 25% of all the data about mercy in the Bible are people asking for mercy. Not just randomly sort of like somebody out here, you know, looking to give mercy to someone. Just time and time again, you have people crying out for mercy. And inherent in that cry is, I messed up. And now we're getting somewhere. And the last thing is just to understand that that is a gift from God. When someone cries out for mercy, and again, very rarely will they say, I need mercy, but they will say, hey, could we talk? Or hey, could, could you help me with something? When people start talking like that, you need to understand God is at work. You don't want to say no to that. You want to make time to be with a person who is hurting and the consequences of their sin because God is at work. Zechariah 12.10, this is sort of a description of what God does. He says, I will pour out of the house of David, out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So he says, I'm going to pour out on the people a spirit of pleading for mercy. This is when you know you've got an opportunity when someone asks for help. When someone's asking for help, you suddenly realize, oh, okay, you, you understand at least partly the situation and so on and so forth. All right. Sorry for that. That was clunky and awkward, but these are the things we have to figure out. Back in St. Louis, our church in St. Louis, we had a guy appear one day, probably in his late 50s, a large dude, always wore white. We all joke that he was maybe an angel. His white, white hair, he wore white pants and wore a white t-shirt. And he had moved back to Belleville from California. And he had lived in California since the 70s, gotten saved out in California. He was a just straight up Jesus people guy, right? You know the type? Great guy. Why did he move back? Well, his brother, 
who through his homosexual lifestyle contracted AIDS, was dying. And so this man moved back to take care of his brother. Now, could he remove the consequences? No. And his brother was kind of a jerk. <laughs> it wasn't was this super thankful guy. <laughs> but this man left his home in California, moved to the Rust Belt town of Belleville, Illinois, right next to East St. Louis, and lived with his brother as his brother died of AIDS and bathed him and fed him and cared for him for a few years. That's mercy. That's mercy. Something like that is what we're talking about when God calls us to mercy. Now, interestingly enough, the question is, is do you think that that guy who died was more likely to trust in Christ dying alone and learning his lesson in a hospital or dying in his bed with his Christian brother at his side? These are the pieces where mercy begins to be substantial. In fact, that's, I believe, the quintessential idea behind mercy. It is God coming to be with us in our pain. Coming to be with us in our pain. We may slightly understand our need for him. We won't fully. But God coming and joining us in our self-inflicted wounds, that's God's work of mercy. So that's what I think Jesus is calling you to. When he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, he's calling you to be the kind of person who is a reflexive mercy person, who when they get bumped, they spill out mercy. And they're like, what is mercy? Mercy is a genuine kindness, a, a, a sympathy, a pity toward people who are suffering the consequences of their sin. And you're like, well, Chris, that's all nice and good, but I don't know when this would be highly relevant. Friends, we're living in a world right now where a bunch of people are attempting to defy gravity with their lifestyles. There will be plenty of self-inflicted wounds to care for in the next 20 to 40 years. And we need to be ready to do that. And we need to be ready to do that with, with the heart of our God, who, who holds a standard and says, this is right, it's truth, so forth, but also says, by the way, I, I want to I walk with you and help you sort out the damage done during this season. I well, to introduce communion. The word for mercy seat in the Greek is actually the Greek word for propitiation. God's ultimate expression of mercy was to send Jesus Christ to die for our sins and to bring us out of what would have been the most ultimate self-inflicted wound, eternity separated from God in hell. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in the book of Romans, Paul begins to talk about this, of course. And in chapter 3, he says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think that's a helpful reminder when we talk about mercy. Every single one of us, desperately need God's mercy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his gift, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, 
he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So do you have faith in Jesus? Is he the payment for your sin? Is he mercy from God to redeem you from your great self-inflicted wounds? Do you have faith in Jesus? Well, Jesus is so happy to give you mercy and knows very clearly that this will teach you so many things about him that he has created this table, not the physical one. The he has made a way for you week after week after week to say this, the God of the universe is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So if that's your Jesus, if you're a follower of, the, of him, come and taste and see that the Lord is good.